You're listening to the to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Angela Decker. Thanks for joining us. We'll start the JX today with the debrief. Our look at the top stories JPR reporters have been covering this week, including an update on the Klamath Dam removals, a possible lawsuit in Klamath County, and concerns about access to public trails on private land. Here's JPR reporter Roman Battaglia and the JPR News team. Good morning. I'm here with reporters Jane Vaughn and Justin Higginbottom and news director Eric Newman. Morning, everyone. Hello. Hello. Um, So, Eric, let's turn to you first, um, because you've been spending a lot of time this week covering what's happening with water being let out of the dams on the Klamath River. So tell us what happened yesterday. Yeah, so yesterday was a big milestone in this really long process to take out the dams. Um, What happened was construction crews began releasing water from Iron Gate Dam. It's one of the three big dams that are still on the river. Um, And letting that water out will turn the big reservoirs that are behind the dam back into a flowing Klamath River. So Iron Gate Dam was the first one in this kind of new phase. Mm -hmm. And is Iron Gate Dam one of the ones that they're removing or that one's going to stay in place? It it is going to be removed, Mm -hmm. yeah. So can you describe what that was like? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> so these dams are on both sides of the Oregon-California border. Uh, this one happened in California, just east of the community of Hornbrook. Um, and basically, there's a huge tunnel at the very base of the dam uh, that was put in when it was built 65 years ago. And at about 9 a.m., crews opened that tunnel. And what happened was water started coming out, initially clear, and then it turned sort of this chocolate milk brown <laughs> because of all the stored up sediment. You know, you imagine decades of sediment behind the dam that started to wash out. So you could hear boulders rolling around inside this tunnel. There were descriptions from people there about how the river was coming back to life for the first time. Um, And on one level, this is really just a really huge engineering project to take out these massive dams. But on a much more significant kind of emotional level, this is a huge step for the Native American tribes that have been fighting for dams to come out for more than two decades. So uh, one of the people that was there yesterday was Amy Cordalis. She's a member of the Yurok tribe who's been very involved with the fight to take the dams out. And this is how she explained the significance of this moment yesterday. This is historic and life-changing, and it means that the Yurok people have a future. It means the river has a future, the salmon have a future. And I, I think really like anybody who loves being on a healthy river, eating fish and um, you know enjoying wild spaces, it means that we have a future. So yeah, today I mean, and today we watched you know the beginning of the end of these dams. That that speaker, Amy Cordell, she mentioned salmon in there. Can you remind us of the role that the fish play and why these dams are being taken out of the Klamath River? Sure. So uh, these dams, including Iron Gate, which, like I said, has been there for 65 years, um, they have blocked fish for the time that they've been on the Klamath River. Other uh, dams in this uh, group have been there for a century. Um, So basically... uh, you know, blocking the river has uh, created conditions for diseases that affect fish to spread. Um, it's disrupted these conditions that create just a healthy river in general. Um, and kind of uh, for people that are familiar with this area, it's really split up this ecosystem into two different pieces where you have the lower Klamath River that flows to the ocean and then you have the upper basin which includes Upper Klamath Lake and so by cutting off that habitat it cuts off hundreds of miles of uh, habitat for fish. The Klamath was once the third largest salmon producing river on the west coast Um, and so you know these fish played a huge role in the lives and cultures of the tribes that are there. So um, they include uh, steelhead as well as uh, 
coho salmon, which are a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. And these fish still swim up the river until they literally hit Iron Gate Dam. Wow. So yeah, so it sounds like fish are a really big part of this process. Um, what, what happens next then? So after they let the water out of Iron Gate Dam, um, they're going to do the same thing at the other two remaining dams that are further up the river. So that's Copco 1 and J.C. Boyle. It's going to take a while for these res- reservoirs to drain. They're huge. I think there's 80,000 uh, 80, acre feet of water, I believe, wow. in uh, Iron Gate Reservoir alone, which is a lot of water. So um, in the coming weeks, it's going to be really interesting to watch these reservoirs as they drain and essentially turn back into a flowing Klamath River. There's going to be, you know, a century worth of silt and algae and mud and all this material that's going to be washed downriver um, as the river kind of carves a new path for itself. Wow, interesting. Thanks, Eric. Um, We'll keep an eye out for your story that you and our JPR colleague, Julia Grable, have been working on that will be published later today. Thanks. Roman, we're going to turn to you. You also covered some important news this week uh, from Oregon Governor Tina Kotek, who announced the extension of a homeless state of emergency this week. Why did she extend it? Yeah, so first, the governor was talking on the anniversary of her inauguration, which was last year, and she talked a lot about the success of this emergency, this homelessness emergency. Um, Preliminary data from Oregon Housing and Community Services said that they've exceeded all of the goals that they had set for this emergency. They created 1,032 new shelter beds, but their and their goal was 600, so that's a huge, you know, exceeding their goal. They rehoused 1,293 households, and they prevented over 8,000 households from becoming homeless in the first place. Um, but Kotek basically was saying that homelessness is not over. According to the Housing and Urban Development Agency's point-in-time count for 2023, there's still 20,000 homeless Oregonians in the state. That's up 3,000 around from 2021, but there's a lot less growth um, from 2021 to 2022 that we saw. In the Rogue Valley, though, homelessness has decreased, so that's good for us, I guess. Um, so, But basically, homelessness isn't over. Kotec had kind of talked about wanting to ensure that these shelters that have been open during this emergency stay open and that, you know, we can't take our foot off the gas. I think there is agreement across the state for all the communities who've been stepping up on this emergency order that we have work to do, that we are still in a crisis situation. Yeah, for sure. So what did you learn about the impacts to the shelters that these cities have now opened? Yeah, a lot of shelters were open because of this emergency specifically. I mean, if they wanted this money, they had to open these shelters. So that includes the biggest city, Portland, but also Medford, Bend, and Ashland, among lots of others. I talked to the mayor of Ashland, Tanya Graham, about this because Ashland was going to shut down their shelter on Wednesday this week. Um, and, you know, the mayor had talked to the governor about extending the emergency and needing to keep it extended to keep the shelter open because of, you know, there's capacity uh, violations that the city would meet if the emergency wasn't there and they need to make these renovations to the building and they also need state funding to keep it open. They can't run a shelter alone. Um, But that extension obviously came at the last minute and the shelter is now going to be able to stay open through March. Um, I think the future of it kind of depends on if they're able to make those renovations and keep the shelter opening as a low barrier shelter. It'll still always be the city's emergency weather shelter But also, you know, at least for the next year, OHS has said that, you know, no shelters that open because of the emergency will have to close because of a lack of funds.
Okay, well, that's good. So what is Governor Kotech prioritizing in this next year in terms of homelessness? Yeah, I, I think that housing is a really big priority, and that's what she's mentioned before previously when I've talked with her. She wants to build on the success of reducing homelessness by essentially keeping the ball rolling. We cannot address homelessness in our state without addressing Oregon's acute shortage of housing. These issues are linked. The resources we put into the system of homelessness services will not have maximum effectiveness unless we have housing units to move people into when they are ready to do so. So she talked about wanting a $500 million housing production package from the state legislature this year. Um, some of that money will go towards infrastructure and incentivizing people to build more homes. Kotex says that infrastructure is a big barrier to development in the state. And yeah, the homelessness emergency is going to last another year. We'll sort of see the results of its effectiveness. Okay, great. Well, we'll keep following that story. Thanks, Roman. Yeah. Turning to you, Jane, on the other side, <laughs> uh, you covered the Shasta County Board of Supervisors this week, which is usually my job, but you ended up doing it. Uh, this week, they voted to get rid of impact fees. Um, for those who don't know, what are impact fees? So they're basically fees that are applied to new developments, new buildings in the unincorporated areas of the county. And they're basically to make sure that the developments pay for the associated added strain on public services. So you've got new developments, new people moving in, you know, straining on, on the public resources. And so those impact fees are then used to fund, you know, public health and fire and libraries and police and, and things like that, those public resources. Um, the average impact fee for a single family home in Shasta County is between six and ten thousand um, dollars and since the county has first adopted them which was back in 2008 they raised almost nine million dollars uh, through impact fees and then that money has been used for a juvenile rehab facility and a fire station and an emergency operations center and all sorts of things yeah so a one-time fee on new development to help pay for the increased cost on services exactly. that these developments are causing um, why did the county decide to get rid of them well, it was a contentious issue. The vote on the Board of Supervisors was three to two, so it was not unanimous. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of public comment about this. Um, on the one side, the side that won, they argue that the impact fees are too high and they're prohibiting smaller builders from being able to build a house. There were some people who said, I want to build my own home or I would like to build a couple homes and these fees are, are cost prohibitive for me. They argued that um, these fees are driving potential residents out of the county. They're going to go build their house somewhere else. Um, and they say that getting rid of the impact fees is really going to spur growth, spur development in the county. Um, and then they say that the money that is lost from the impact fees would be made up through the increased ensuing property values. So that's that's their argument. And then on the other side, there were people saying that getting rid of the fees would only benefit uh, the big developers and, and not the, the little guy. Um, they say that getting rid of the impact fees is going to deprive the county of that much needed income, that $9 million that I mentioned. Some people said the board should wait to make a decision. This was the first time, you know, it came up before the board and they made a decision that day. And some people said we should wait and gather some more information, um, get some more statistics or some more studies. They didn't have any data on how Shasta's impact fees compared to other counties. So um, the auditor controller didn't have any information on that. And then they argued that 
getting rid of the impact fees would mean more financial trouble for the county because if you get rid of the impact fees, then that money is going to have to come out of the general fund. So obviously that side did not prevail, but they did end up voting to uh, get rid of the impact fees. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of hypothesis about what actually is going to happen for the county. Do we have any idea of like what sort of impacts this decision will have? Broadly, yes. I mean, I think it could have big impacts on public services and on growth in the county. There's now, you know, no more impact fees, so you don't have to pay that fee. So, you know, the argument is that's going to cause more more growth, but I think there's going to be a lot of sort of trickle-down effects um, as well. There are um, some upcoming projects that will use impact fees, so like the jail expansion and increased inventory for library technology. And then also, coincidentally, the U.S. Supreme Court is currently considering a case about impact fees in California. And so the outcome of that case could obviously have big implications as well. Yeah, interesting. I guess we'll have to see how this affects development in Shasta County. Thanks, Jane. Sure. Uh, So, Justin, you reported uh, this week that local governments are considering closing trails on their property. Um, This stems from a lawsuit against the city of Newport. Can you tell us about what that lawsuit was about? Yeah. So in uh, 2019, a woman fell on a bridge owned by the city of Newport, and she sued the city for damages. But there's this Oregon law called recreational immunity that can protect property owners, basically, who open up their land for recreation. Um, If the owners don't charge a fee and they've improved their land in some way for recreation, then they usually aren't liable for damages if someone injures themselves using it. Yeah. So if the private property owner has like a trail that the public is allowed to use and they've improved it just for recreation only, then they're not necessarily liable for that stuff. But exactly. You know, why couldn't Newport use this recreational immunity clause to have the judge throughout this case? Well, this woman's argument was that she wasn't using the bridge for recreation. She was using it on the way to recreate. And the Oregon's uh, Court of Appeals actually upheld that event uh, defense. And so now the case is moving forward. Interesting. So she's saying that she was on her way to go recreate stuff. Um, What's going to happen now then in this case? So cities and counties are, they're suddenly in a position where their liability could be a lot more than they thought. Um, If people can now use this defense, a major major insurance company for local governments in Oregon has recommended they actually close their trails. But so far, we've only seen a small number of trails uh, closed that we know about. Um, It looks like most local governments are going to wait and see if the state legislature will tweak the, the recreational immunity law in February. Yeah, great. God, sounds like we'll have to follow it up on in February. Uh, thanks, Justin. Uh, Jane, just quickly turning to you, this week you also covered Humboldt County's safe parking program, which the Board of Supervisors extended this week. Could you just tell us a little bit what is a safe parking program? Sure. So it's a pilot program that provides homeless people with a safe place to park their cars and sleep. Um, it's open to government agencies, nonprofits, religious institutions. You can set it up. Not just a parking lot. You have to have sanitary facilities and showers and trash and things like that. And there is a big need for, for these sort of things in the county. Um, and so they voted this week to just extend um, the program, even though no one has, has used it at all. Uh, it's a pilot program that was originally approved 18 months ago. And they found recently that no organizations have even tried to use it to create a safe parking facility because no one knew about it. And so they're um, approving it again, extended it for another two years to give it another chance to work. So if you want to create a safe parking facility in Humboldt County, that's now available uh, for the next two years. Great. Thank you, Jane. Um, That's going to be it for this week's debrief. Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments on our coverage and suggestion for things we should cover in the future through our news tip line. You can find that on our website at ijpr.org. And you can find this program and more on our website at jeffexchange.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. 